Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Greg Brooks. Smartest man in the world, Proopcast, takes to the ether here from the salubrious confines of London's most uh, venerated and exciting place of edgy comedy deep beneath the streets of the, of the area of London where you can find mendicants in every form of miscreant, Soho, right here in London at the Soho Theatre, ladies and gentlemen, hooray. Once again, we convene... We can join in the meeting of minds uh, as we all seek our like-minded hilariousness, one and all. I welcome if you're listening out there in vodcast land. This is an awesome time to light one up. If you're riding a bike around, this is an awesome time to reach down and pull out that flask I know you have under the seat and have a hit of whatever it is that makes you groovy. If you're listening at home, this is a bitchin' time to make a stir-fry. I don't think anything goes better with my show than bell peppers. And I would go with the green ones or I were you. Uh, they don't look like bells, and I have no idea why they're called that. And they're not hot either, so uh, the whole... Still, the controversy persists. <laughs> it's awesome to be back here in London, particularly this week, where I know all y'all are wicked happy because it's warm. <laughs> Yay, yeah. Uh, last time I was here in March, uh, there was a frigid, icy, horrible, arctic torrent blasting over the island because, as you know, there's no more polar ice cap. And uh, you're getting all of the weather that uh, the Arctic used to enjoy all on its own. And now you come from the land of the ice and snow and the midnight sun and the hot springs flow. Uh, so just having this week here where it's even mildly warm like it is, although I have to admit it's a bit close for me. Mm. Uh, how do you do humidity here on an island where the breeze blows constantly? That's what I'd like to know. How does the moisture stay in the air? It's just that intransigent fucking British dictativeness, isn't it? <laughs> the moisture enters the air and just goes, fuck it, I'm staying. <laughs> Except the air uh, and the water use a, a British accent instead of what I was just doing. <laughs> but I notice people are a lot happier here when it's warmer. When it's fucking freezing here, people are like, you go like, hi, and they're like, fuck you. <laughs> Then you come around like this and all of a sudden people are wearing shorts and their giant white thighs are blinding you and stuff. <laughs> Men are wearing mandals, which, oh no, honey. <laughs> I've had cotton chips since I've been here. Oh yes, I have. Only been here a couple days. Already had cotton chips. It was awesome. It was such a giant portion of cotton chips that halfway through I went, oh, <laughs> You know that feeling when you've had enough fried food to kill a fucking Turkish legion? <laughs> I just went like, I can't have any more cod. Uh, but no, I didn't switch over. I didn't get a salad or anything like that. I think when you commit to cotton chips, you fucking commit all the way to cotton chips. You ride that cod all the way to its base. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at a cod riding joke. It's not often that we get that kind of largesse here, and, and that's why I've come back once again to the dinky, dirty island off the coast of Europe. Um, the, uh, we was, we've been getting around town, getting around town. Only, uh, I've only been here a day or two, uh, and uh, we went to see the David Bowie exhibition over at the, uh, the Victorian Albert Museum, or as you guys know, the V&I. And, uh, so we went over the V&A yesterday. We took the tube, no incidents. Uh, as I recall, the last time I was here, I was on the tube, and I, I had uh, the... Um, uh, I believe each car in the tube has a designated racist marshal. 
who's there to remind you of the packies and everyone that are ruining their world. And then, uh, oh, no, there was. Okay, all right, I'm lying. We're going down the stairs. We was, uh, we was in North London, and we, we're going down the, the interminable fucking uh, escalator, right? Sometimes you think when you're taking the escalator down in the tube in London, let me describe the tube in London for people listening. You have to remember that people in America and Poland are listening, and <laughs> that they don't know what the tube is like uh, in London. Well, let me describe it to you. It's like the subway in New York, except it's not a filthy, horrible, venereal, disease-ridden pit. LAUGHTER uh, the tube in New York has uh, hideous rats that have all sorts of antlers and stuff like that that they shouldn't have. I've never seen a rat in the tube in London because I think, frankly, they're frightened of the passengers. Uh, there's giant ads uh, that, that blow you away. There's hideous uh, candy machines that I would never, ever buy a candy bar from because who changes that candy out? Uh, or, or sweets, as you prefer to call them, even though it's Cadbury and they're not that fucking sweet. So we're taking the interminable uh, uh, escalator down, right? And, uh, like, after a while, you're like, how far down are we? <laughs> like, London is built on rivers, and there's nothing underneath London but other parts of London from other previous centuries and hideous water uh, currents that have been diverted and, and, and stuffed and, and mutated and, and moved so that they could build what could be the most dangerous system of underground transportation in the history of mankind. If you had anything like an earthquake here ever, all the walls would burst open, all those beautiful glazed deco walls would burst open, and, or Victorian walls, and just water would just pour in because there's nothing but rivers that have been waiting their fucking chance <laughs> since the 19th century to burst through. So after about 500 meters down, a woman comes up behind me on the escalator and goes, there's a drunk behind me, would you please fucking block him? And I went, of course I will, my precious. And I, uh, because of my insane virility, uh, I formed a gigantic masculine blockade on the escalator. I put my arms akimbo and just... Right? I started singing, We're riding on the escalator of life. And, that, and sure enough, after she passed, about ten seconds later, this dude fucking pitches up and he's like... He was really... It was, it was one in the afternoon and you could smell the booze from 14 steps away. He was like Peter Lufford in a, in a 50s movie. It was pretty weird. Thank you for not knowing who Peter Lawford is. <laughs> and as I block him, she runs down. And then he fucking makes his way to her anyway. And I see him accost them. He, and we're all over at a sign, uh, one of the uh, uh, maps in the tube. One of those indecipherable maps that, like, it, to me, it's just a series of blue and purple lines and red lines and shit. To you guys, it's a well-organized thing that shows where every stop is. Oh, High Holborn. That's near Holborn. To me, I'm like, that's not near it anywhere. How do they... How, guy? And um, he's like... Where are you looking for? And I'm like, I know where I'm looking for. Anywhere that you're not present uh, would be the best place on earth. And uh, so uh, he uh, finally, of course, we try to run to a, car, a carriage that he's not going to be in. It's like homing radar. He fucking gets in the carriage immediately behind us and is lurching down the aisle and then is working these poor girls the whole way. And I hear her berating her boyfriend, where the fuck were you? And I'm like, yeah, you had to go for 90s television stars. <laughs> to block your thank you for the one person who laughed loud at that it sounded like my friend Dave Fulton the comedian uh, yes it was I identified his laughter uh, <coughs> so we made our way to the VNA. we go to the Bowie show and uh, I don't know if anyone's been to the Bowie show I know you can't get tickets it's been a very popular show did you go? Yeah. did you enjoy it? yeah? yeah? yes <laughs> Th thank you for that affirmative response 
It's all on me. I asked a yes or no question. I didn't say, describe the myriad ways in which the show enveloped your mind and engaged you emotionally. I didn't ask that. I said, did you enjoy it? And the proper answer to that is either yeah or mm. <laughs> If I'd asked how it, how it felt uh, to be involved in an entire, what is more than one room of David Bowie memorabilia, there's pieces of paper that David Bowie wrote on in 1965. That's the kind of exhibit this is. I don't know if that entices you or repels you at this point, but that's what this show is. There's shit that belonged to him. There's shit that didn't belong to him. There's stuff he borrowed. There's stuff he stole. There's every book he ever fucking read. There's every reference that he ever goneft. And that's a Yiddish word. And Yiddish is what the Jews speak when we're controlling the world with our ears and our horns and our tails. Uh... Uh, evidently David Bowie is the sum of a lot of parts I guess is the thesis of the show because there's signs on the wall that said like David Bowie is not here or David Bowie is someone else David Bowie's not who you think he is and shit like that and you're like I kind of think he is (laughs) I've seen David Bowie and I know who the fuck he is and uh, that is who he is Uh, I'm not ready to break it all down but uh, it it was a fantastic show Um, elaborate is the way I would describe it I, I didn't know that there was going to be a bracelet from like 1959 that had uh, cock, I can't even remember who was on the bracelet. It wasn't, it was, I'm just going to fill in who it was. Billy Fury and Rolf Harris and like there was like a charm bracelet that had all these like antediluvian English pop stars in it. Like it wasn't Tommy Steele, but it should have been Tommy Steele. You know what I mean? And the whole crowd, what the fuck are you talking about, Greg? It would be like if you saw... Uh, in, in 30 years' time, when they have the One Direction exhibit at the V&A, <laughs> there'll be a charm bracelet there with Justin Bieber's head on it and Justin Timberlake and everyone named Justin that ever performed and Lady Gaga, whose actual name is Justin. I don't know if you know that. That's what it was like. So there was a little more detail than I was actually ready for at that point. And I just want to hip you to a couple of things. For people who don't uh, come to Britain or have never been to Britain or the country of England or the island of England or whatever we call it now, Great, Great Britain. Uh, uh, you're, well, you're only Britain when the Olympics, really. Most, mostly you're England and fuck you Wales. <laughs> then when the Olympics happen, all of a sudden you're fucking Britain. Oh, fucking Nice. But the guy who won was Scottish. Oh, he's fucking one of us, isn't he? Uh, If you've not been, um, people here love to uh, cue more than anything else that could ever happen. What we would say in America is line up. And if you were in New York, you'd say online. You'd get online. It doesn't mean you're going on the internet. It just means you're standing behind someone else. Uh, But that's how New Yorkers say it. Here, people will cue for anything. If you just stand in London anywhere, someone will stand behind you. like 30 people waiting behind you because they think something's going to happen. (laughs) So you get to a show like this and you have to go through each room and the first rooms are really dinky and there's a Billy Fury bracelet and a thing and a thing and a record and a blah, blah, blah and a piece of cloth and a a picture of uh, uh, Bertolt Brecht. Yeah, fucking whatever. And... It's England. So people have spent however much... How much was it to get into the Bowie show? Like 15 quid or whatever? 20 quid? 15 pounds, okay. Well, now we're having a couple's argument in front. I was, I was hoping for a quick answer, but it turned into a discussion. Again, let me explain England to you. No one will give you a straight answer here because that would be easy and convenient, fun and glib. What they will do is argue with you for the rest of the day and then say, what a diamond day that was. Because arguing here is like foreplay. English people don't use foreplay. 
See what I've got in the glass here? Alcohol. That's what foreplay is here in England. Six of these, and then what's your name? I don't even care what your fucking name is. Sorry I asked. And then the next morning, you pretend it never happened, and that's what England's all about. People would rather argue here than give you a fucking answer. And people would rather stand and read every single sign. And the, and the, the, the poster, the signage, was really dinky in front of every uh, uh, exhibit, right? It was really small, and it would say, and, and breathlessly written, like, as, if, as if someone who had just been to the Ziggy Stardust show had come home and written it in a purple felt pen. All that was missing was stars over the eyes. It would be like, David Bowie had this bracelet, and it was one of the greatest bracelets anyone's ever had! <laughs> it's a bracelet, okay, I'll give you that. Uh, and so people are reading it, and they're reading it like it's the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> As if, first you have to read it in ancient Bowie glyph. You know, codpiece, codpiece, glitter, rhinestone, orange hair. And then it's in... <laughs> Demotic, you know, and then it just says crotch shot, crotch shot, platform shoes, Mick Ronson. And then underneath it, it, it in, in another language, in, tar, in Greek, right? So it would just be like, you know, failure, failure, you know, uh, 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 spanakopita. So people are reading it like this, just like forever and ever, and no one will move. And the other thing about England is, and I'm not making a generalization, but let me make one. Uh, the people that visit museums, evidently, on a Monday, uh, haven't, haven't been that involved in bathing over the weekend. <laughs> like, let's just say bathing wasn't the top priority. Maybe running on a treadmill backwards for four or five kilometers was the top priority, and eating every beef and tomato crisp in the entirety of Swindon. That was their first priority. Then coming to the Bowie exhibit on Monday without having bathed the whole weekend and having consumed more crisps on the tube on the way here on the train. So they're, they're standing, they smell, and they won't fucking move. So at a certain, and you can't shove them. This is England. I know you can't shove people. And you can't say, excuse me, because if you say, excuse me, people don't know what you did. In the rest of the world, if you say, excuse me, people go, excuse me. Here in England, if you go, excuse me, they're like, What? You have to apologize here, because arguing and apologizing are the two things people do best. <laughs> Fuck you, I disagree, and sorry. <laughs> so if you bump into someone here, you have to go, sorry, and they go, sorry, and then you go, sorry, and then they go, sorry, <laughs> and then no one moves. <laughs> so uh, that took a while to get through. Then you get to this other room, right? Uh, there's, there, there's a million rooms, and all of his costumes are there. The Yamamoto one that's got the big... Um, uh, 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 pants, you know, the giant pants that go out sideways, and then every single costume that he ever wore in every era of it, including, and this was the part that I, my wife and I took exception to, his acting career, and I'm not, we're going to come back to, alright, we're going to into it now. <laughs> David Bowie's a fabulous rock star, there's no question of that. I saw him, I've seen him several times, I saw him on the Sirius Moonlight Tour uh, in 1983, when he had Let's Dance, which was a giant hit for him. Paolo, cue up Cue up some, cue up like Blue Gen or something. Uh, and uh, when I saw him that time, this was the, uh, I'm reasonably sober, I have blonde hair, I'm wearing suspender, braces, I don't know what we call them here. I've, I say suspenders, I'm afraid people are going to think he was wearing like panties and fucking, <laughs> and a bra and whatnot. He was wearing like the white trousers, right? And this was that, this dance move that... <laughs> 
that era. Uh, and he was really bitching. Uh, he smoked a lot on stage. Then this is way before the heart attack. And um, he... Uh, 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 so they had that costume as well. Uh, but then there's the acting career. And the, there was a whole room dedicated to the acting. And that said, David Bowie is not who you think he is. And it was like... <laughs> so it had a reel, a clip reel, like he was auditioning for you. What we used to have in, 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 in Hollywood in the old days, if you wanted an acting job, you made a little tape or a DVD of all the acting you'd done. So it would be like you doing it like... Doctor, I don't think he's going to live. And then followed by, strike three, what? You know, and then, right? Like all the different parts you played and shit like that to show your versatility. Well, David Bowie is an amazing rock star and has changed personas a gajillion times. Um, the one thing he hasn't changed as an actor is the fact that he's David Bowie every time he's in a movie. <laughs> There's not a David Bowie movie where you go like, oh, fuck, he's different in this one. It, it's like he's... Mick Jagger in this. He's always David Bowie. He talks the same. He looks the same. He always goes... So the clips they showed were awesomely Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which no one... You know, prison camp movies aren't as funny as they used to be. If there's one thing that's always going to rock the crowd, it's being interred in a Japanese prison camp in World War II with dyed blonde hair. You know, in my opinion, and I'm going out on a limb here, not enough British soldiers during World War II dyed their hair blonde and had it cut in an early 80s style. Uh, and and it, in the description of Mr. Lawrence, it said... Uh, he, he uses a lot of his immense physical talent. So they come in, and this clip they showed, two Japanese guards come in to get him, and they kick the door open, and they go, and it says in the t- subtitles, get up. And David Bowie goes, and pretends to mime shaving for a real long time. And then pretends to be served tea and goes, oh, tea, I'd love some, to nobody. And then... Before he's done drinking the tea, pretends to smoke a fag. And you're like, you haven't finished drinking the tea. I don't teach mime, nor do I enjoy mime in any way. But God damn it, David, you rushed the beat on that one. <laughs> Were I your acting coach? And by the way, my next album is called David Bowie's Acting Coach. Parts one and parts I I. I would have said you, you slammed a little hard from the tea into the fag. I would have, and for our American listeners, no. It was a cigarette he was miming. Because they're all caught up in that. Uh, but I say, and I, I will stand by this, I assert, they left out his two best movies. So there was something from The Prestige, which I saw on a plane. And if I hadn't been on a plane, I'd have fucking walked. Uh, there was something from the Prestige. There was something from an uh, early 1967 silent sh- thing he made. There was also uh, um, uh, uh, Mr. Lawrence and then um, they, and Labyrinth, which is beyond measure, the, the finest of all the movies he made. But it wasn't the scene from Labyrinth that you wanted. It was the scene where he bursts into Sarah's room and goes, uh, you can't have your brother. Ma. And she goes, but I, I, want, my, I, I want my brother. And he's like, so... Because he's real high. And I can't even describe his wig. I don't know how you... His, his, Sarah. 
And Jennifer Conley's like 11 or however old she is in the movie, 15 and shit. And no, the movie, the, the scene you want is the magic dance. Uh, am I wrong? That's the scene you want from Labyrinth, right? You remind me of the babe, babe and all that. And, and then, I, because I watched it today, the magic dance is so awesomely, when he does... How high were you when you choreographed this, David? That, I don't know if it's magic. It's something, but it's not magic. And where was the fucking hunger, okay? Where was the hunger? If anybody remembers, he was in a movie with Catherine Deneuve and uh, Susan Sarandon uh, that Tony Scott directed that had... This is, this is the entirety of the movie The Hunger. Oh, I'm a vampire. It was good. It was good. Uh, and David Bowie is super sexy as a vampire who, who dies in one scene in that. And I thought, well, fuck you. I could have curated this better. Magic dance, then a scene with him. There's a scene where Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve go down on each other in The Hunger. That's fucking good movie making. <laughs> I realized David Bowie wasn't in it, but it would have... <laughs> I mean, if there had been a scene in the movie where him and Mick Jagger were just grinding against each other, I would have put that in. I guess they'll never let me curate a Bowie show. <laughs> the Prestige? Are you fucking joking me? What the fuck was that movie about? Electricity and shit? I didn't even understand the fucking plot. And Hugh Jackman was in the clip. And Hugh Jackman's doing an American accent like I do an Australian accent. Shittily. Like, Hugh Jackman was talking like this. I am from America. Why don't you just have me get up and do a one-man show of the Road Warrior and shit? I reckon you got a bag in Graham Gooch's Greatest Hits, as read by Greg Proops. It was weird. That room was weird. Then the last room, uh, there's a Berlin room, because uh, David Bowie was real high in those, and it was an awesome part of his career. My favorite album. Now, I don't know which albums you like. Do you have any music queued up of David Bowie, Paolo? Which one? Well, don't fucking tell me. Just play something. That's a good one. Absolutely the most complete nonsense, right? Fantastic. Uh, that was after Let's Dance, and he was like, fuck, I need another one. And uh, that was a really good one. But, <laughs> sorry. Uh, the best, my favorite album is Station to Station. I don't know if anybody likes that album, Station to Station. It's got TVC15 and uh, Stay. And uh, I was in high school then. You guys are a lot younger than me. And uh, I'm sort of feeling that right now. <laughs> This was in the 70s. So when we were getting ready to go out in the 70s, you'd smoke a joint and you'd put a record on in your room. And uh, that was the record I always played was Station to Station by Bowie. And so there's a Berlin room. And he was, I think, 
on heroin. And so there's a video of him from then, and he goes, well, I, I did a lot of painting. <laughs> David, there's a lot of things we want you to do. We want you to wear platform shoes. We want you to rock out. We want you to have, pretend to have Mick Ronson fillet you. We want you to be fabulous and change your hair color every two seconds. The one thing we don't want is painting. <laughs> it's like if the Stones went, you know, after Sticky Fingers, we thought it would be great if we just sketched for a while. <laughs> we got some charcoal and a pan. <laughs> after London Calling, the Clash decided to color. <laughs> After Madonna's ray of light, she thought, watercolors, that's it. A little bit of stippling to show a river coursing through. Uh, so uh, there's that room. And then after you leave the, the Berlin room, there's, my wife goes, there's giant video screens everywhere. And it's him from the 70s, which is awesome, doing Gene Genie, right, with the spiders from Mars. And uh, uh, my wife goes, there, there's giant video screens everywhere. She's like, what is this, the Chairman Mao room? Because at this point, the music's so fucking loud that you're reduced to, like, curling up in the corner while it's... Do you, can you find Jean Genie on there? Paolo? Please don't leave. It's going to get funnier. <laughs> I know, you're going to the bathroom. Will you bring me back a vodka? Not from the bathroom. Can we form a human... Oh, everyone's getting up now. Okay, fuck it. <laughs> turned into a fucking uh, magic dance. <laughs> precious love, can I have another vodka when you get a chance? A vodka flavored drink with vodka in it? Thank you, my precious. Uh, it, the music's so loud, right? And this is what made me laugh about everybody was watching, right? This is a David Bowie show. So it's not like it's Pizarro or, you know, Caravaggio <laughs> or, or, or like some famous artist that does painting or plastic art. It's a rock star who's been... Uh, Elevated and given this enormous show at the VNA, and quite right, he's David Bowie and all that. And without him, there's no Noel Fielding. Without him, there's no Lady Gaga, right? There's, right? Am I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not being a dick. I'm saying, without David Bowie, there's not a lot of stuff, right? He's he's influential in so much as that he's a gadfly. He's a magpie. He takes a million influences. He he transmogrifies them. He puts them out and turns them into. Thank you, my precious love. Security. Who the fuck is this? Um, <laughs> Oh, I wanted a big one. Whatever. Um, sorry, you only get a gill or whatever they're called. Um, the, uh... Mm, nice and warm. Warm vodka. This is like playing in Lithuania in the 70s. So, uh... The, uh, uh there's giant screens everywhere and they're playing it and everyone is watching there's, there's little places to sit everywhere like little I wouldn't say chairs this is England so comfort mm. uh, there's black boxes that have been painted and they've sat everywhere and people are sitting like this in this enormous can you play Gene Genie? you got Gene Genie? Would you crank that up and this is what I'll do with my <laughs> Keep it playing. Okay, I'm in there like... Life. New York's a go-go and everything tastes nice. Poor little greenie. 
smoke dope in this room? To improve the Bowie exhibit thing? Uh, no one was dancing. Me and one other lady. Me and one lady. Me and, it wasn't my wife. My wife sat down. She, then my wife's got it. We're all have, they make you wear these headphones, and you have to carry a, a 1980s Walkman with you. And you're wearing headphones, and it keeps changing from room to room, right? Uh, you know, the, then David Bowie invented talking. And uh, you know, then David Bowie invented moving his left shoulder. You know, like, it's hilarious. So you get into the, the, the Chairman Mao room, and the thing's playing really loud, and my wife's got her headphones on. And then they show this clip from the 90s, which, you know, ill-advised, but there you are. Uh, he's got longer hair, and the, the crowd, they show a crowd shot from the 90s. And everybody's got a mustache and fucking icky hair and earrings and shit, and my wife goes, it's a good thing, look how many coke dealers are in there. And I go, you're yelling. I go, you're wearing headphones. And she goes, what? I go, you're wearing headphones. She goes, look how many coke dealers you can see in the audience. And everyone's just sitting and they all... The whole audience looked like coke dealers. It was awesome in so many ways, in so many countries. So I suggest you go. It's good fun. My, our friend T- uh, Tony Visconti, is, uh, gives, uh, who produced 13 of David Bowie's albums, uh, gets to give a speech in there. It's a, it's a pretty wild exhibition. I don't know if you're good to go. Google it. Uh, if you can't go, just go online and Google fucking Gene Genie and all those songs and, and have a drink, and you'll enjoy it. Uh, and then curate your own exhibition. You can watch the magic dance over and over on YouTube, and you can get up and recreate it at home. And you can pretend your socks are all the characters in the Muppets, right? So you can go, black babe, like that and shit like that. And it's funner for you. The, the, the babe of the power. <laughs> And if you have a white cat, you can put it on your head and pretend to be David Bowie in the movie. The power of voodoo. Voodoo. You do. Remind me of... (laughs) Boys. Boys. It's a sweet thing. He's a mixture of Anthony Newley and the Cowardly Lion sometimes. And may God's love be with you. Uh, it was good. It was good fun. Uh, so, Liz, look, um, I, there's a lot to get to tonight. We should start the show. We really, really should. But first, uh, how about this? Uh, I'm, we're playing all over the world. Uh, so, like, next week, we showed Dog Day. There's a new uh, Proofcast Down, and it's called, uh, which is also the name of my next movie, Proofcast Down, and it's the sequel to Black Cock Down. Thank you. And uh, it's a Dog Day Afternoon, if no one's ever seen that movie. It's, it's quite good. What you do is you queue up the movie, you listen to my show, and then you watch the movie, and then you come back and, and do whatever. Um, Let's see, what do we got here? We're uh, again here at the Soho on the 23rd. I think by the time this goes out, it'll, that'll be passed, but we're here on Sunday next. Uh, in Amsterdam on the 27th for uh, what can only be described as a seven-and-a-half-hour proofcast. Um, <laughs> then we'll be in Oslo, Norway, where I understand they're, they're very persnickety about marijuana in Oslo, which I don't understand at all. Um, they invented pillaging. <laughs> So what, at this late date, a thousand years later, you're huffy about someone blowing some reef? 
Didn't you used to cut people's heads off and drink out of their fucking head? And that's where the word skull comes from? So what, now I can't blow a joint because you're going to fucking huff out on me? I'm not going to bring dope to Norway. Everybody calm down. I'll just drink like everyone else in that country. It'll be fun. And then if you're back in Los Angeles on the uh, 3rd of July, um, which is the day before Independence Day when we threw off the yoke of tyranny that you people laid on us. (laughs) As if King George III was capable of tyranny at that point. He was out in the garden going, who's a pretty squirrel? Uh, King George had a lot of children. Uh, that'll be the 3rd of uh, July. Then the 9th of July, we'll be back at Bar Lubitsch. Uh, we'll be at the Punchline in San Francisco, my hometown, on the 18th of July. We'll be in Ireland uh, at the Galway. Um, I think... Oh, sorry? The Jesus. Hi. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and all the saints. We'll be in, we'll be in Galway. Uh, where? I, I'm, I'm deaf as a post, and I don't speak Gaelic, so I'm in a... You have me at a disadvantage, sir. Do you know, do you know how to pronounce R-O-I-S-O-N-D-U-B-H? Roshindub. That's what it's pronounced. Well, that's where we'll be. Uh, I've never been able to pronounce it. To me, it's Rosendubs. We'll be in Galway. And then uh, doing a couple gigs with uh, those maniacs, uh, Frosty and uh, Smarty and Steeny and Ian Coppinger, doing a couple improv gigs with them or as we call it here on the island, Impro, because apparently no Vs. Uh, The 31st of July through the 15th of uh, August will be in Edinburgh at the the Edinburgh Comedy Festival. Uh, On the 3rd, the 10th, and the 15th, we'll be doing Proofcast from there. We'll be in New Orleans on the the 6th of uh, November. September at the uh, place called Helen Wolf, and I'm really looking forward to that. And then uh, on the 11th of, of September, or as we call it in America, 9-11, the day that we decided we were the country that everyone was supposed to feel sorry for, and yet at the same time take out our dick and kill everyone else in the world. <laughs> you remember that day. We'll be in Denver on that day, and that'll be cool. Um, <laughs> If you want to go, also I have a commercial to read here because uh, we have some fellow uh, podcasters and they're doing, if you can believe this, the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music. Do you have any music back there, Apollo? Play play something while I read this uh, advertisement because we don't do a lot of ads on the show, but we've uh, decided to do this one because uh, they're very good friends of ours. Tonight, Apollo. (laughs) During the body of the podcast. Is your iPod. You're right, it is my iPod, thank you. He's playing Station to Station, the song Station to Station. It starts with two and a half minutes of a train going through a tube. Did I mention they were high on heroin when they made the album? Good square no two. What? Oh yeah. Coming this September, it's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. September 13th to the 16th, join some of your favorite comedians and musicians for a cruise to the Bahamas. Why do I get the feeling no one in this room is going to buy a ticket to this? No, keep playing it. I'm not done reading the fucking copy. Look, there's a whole page. 
You'll enjoy two nights of great comedy. Two? Scampy on the comedy. Featuring Mark Marin, Eugene Merman, Josie Long, Jenna Ray, Nick Dunes, John Hodgman, Scott Simpson, Cameron Esposito, Ray Butcher, Rhea Butcher, Jasper Red, Kristen Shaw, and Kurt Braunholer. Uh, Braunholer. Excuse me, Kurt. Your name is not Braunholer. <laughs> It's brown alert. Although, really, when you think about David Bowie's career, the most important... Keep playing it. The most important part of David Bowie's career, in my opinion, and I'm giving my opinion incessantly, that's all I do in the show, is that he brought uh, uh, an ambisexual, pansexuality, gay feeling to rock and roll that even surpasses that of the Stones and doesn't quite match that of the New York Dolls or the Velvet Underground, but tips into that territory. And I think that's where he's most important, that he, ta- he took that into the mainstream. I-, I don't think there's a more important achievement in his career uh, other than the fact that he brought pansexuality into everybody and, and let men understand, which they still don't fucking understand, that if a guy wears eyeliner and tight pants and acts like a girl, he's going to get pussy, okay? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, sorry I called you Kurt Brownholer. Brownholer. There's also one night of amazing musical performances by John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats, John Roderick of the Long Winners, Nellie Mackay. Nellie Mackay is a singular one-off. She is kooky most, if you've ever seen Nellie Mackay. Uh, and Dan Deacon. The ship leaves from Miami, and you'll get to spend two days in the Bahamas, one day in Nassau. Funky Nassau. The funky Nassau. Nassau got funky. And Nassau got so And one day on a private island Wow what's, what's that going to be like, one wonders How private And how much of an island Ooh, I'm over here near a palm tree Ouch, I didn't know you were inside me This is private, my name's Kurt Look at these skies and that's become There'll be other fun activities, too. I didn't write this copy, by the way. There'll be other fun activities, comma, too, hyphen. A shuffleboard tournament. Are you fucking shitting me? A shuffleboard tournament? I didn't realize I was 84 years old. A cocktail party, comma, and more. I don't think you need the comma in front of cocktail party. A shuffleboard tournament, cocktail party, I'm going to take that comma out. And more. Exclamation point. So let me read it the way it should be written. There'll be other fun activities, too. A shuffleboard tournament, cocktail party, and more! (laughs) To find out more about the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, check out boatparty-biz. Do we call them hyphens here? Dash? And we've got Paolo. I know it's my fucking iPod. But is there no more music? Maybe one of those other 70s groups that I was talking about. I'll wait. It was weird at the Bowie show because 
as much as I like David Bowie and as much as I love David Bowie and as much as I took drugs and listened to David Bowie and as much as I still take drugs and listen to David Bowie, like, for instance, last night. Um, oh, crank that one up. Does anyone remember this one? Uh, to find out more about the Atlantic Ocean Comedy, and um, we've got a great deal for you listeners. If you go to the boat party hyphen dot hyphen biz hyphen slash hyphen smartest, sweet fucking Maria. That was like climbing Everest without oxygen there. If you go to boat party hyphen dot hyphen biz hyphen slash hyphen smartest, you can get $50 off per ticket. Exclamation point. Book now! Exclamation point. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival colon comedy dot comedy period music full stop shuffleboard full stop thank you for sitting through that that was the part that got me was uh, the David Bowie show basically didn't acknowledge that there was any other music ever that happened during David Bowie's career which I thought was hilarious um, find another track on there how about the Led Zeppelin one this, this also happened during David Bowie's career this is a good one and I think you'll well, not tonight, but later. <laughs> Is there a better opening to a song ever? Oh, you can leave it on. It's a lesson on guitar playing. Never hold your guitar up here. Like your guitar is so heavy that you can't hardly hold it. And please, please, if you're going to play this song, have a big dick. Don't have a small one. Uh, that was Led Zeppelin, off Led Zeppelin I I I. Uh, we have letters. If you want to write us, it's uh, smartestdoespecialthing.com. If you want to write me personally, fanmail4greg at gmail.com. I'm so fucking far behind. If you've written me, I'm sorry. It's been weeks. But I will get to you. Here's one from fanmail4greg at gmail.com. Dear Aunt Proops. <laughs> That's Mr. Aunt Proops to you. My girlfriend gets bitsy with me. I think it's bitchy. I think we dropped a H there. B-I-T-C-Y, this says. Gets bitsy. Gets bitchy. I'm going to correct that. My girlfriend gets bitchy with me when I smoke pot. What can I do? Question mark. LOL, Joe. Thank you for writing me, Joe. Uh, there's, first of all, there's many options, Joe. Uh, if, if Joe is indeed your name and you're not operating under a nom de plume, nom de email. Um, first of all, if she gets bitsy with you, you're fucking high. I think you'll find it's bitchy. If she gets bitsy with you, then little bits and bobs are flying all over the fucking room. There's two things you can do, Joe. One, um, don't smoke pot in front of her. Smoke it outside and then come in. And then she goes, when she goes, did you get high? I go, no. <laughs> 
The other thing you can do is fucking break up with her and go out with a girl who rides a motorcycle. Someone just went, woo, in the crowd. I can only presume you ride a motorcycle and smoke pot, and that's awesome of you. Or you can go to the Mao room at the David Bowie exhibit, smoke dope in there, get thrown out of the V&A, and then see how bitchy she fucking gets with you. Because at that point, she's going to go, hmm, you were right to smoke dope in there. Hmm. Uh, or quit smoking dope, which I don't suggest, uh, unless you're in church or uh, certain places is inappropriate, I find. At funerals, people are like, huffy. If, if you light one up while the eulogy's going on, people are like, could you? How do we know it's your girlfriend, Joe, since you wrote me as Aunt Proops? Yeah. This crowd's gone all quiet, but I think the people in Proopcast land are intimating exactly where I'm coming from on this one. Uh, thank you, Joe, for that. Um, also, you could um, drink in front of her, and then um, when she's not looking, eat some edibles. And then she'll never know that you uh, were smoking pot. Uh, walking, uh, this is from Walking the Room. I mentioned I was on a, a podcast with Greg Barron and uh, Dave Anthony called Walking the Room. and um, Oh, sweet Maria. Uh, and... Uh, they, the, the idea of, uh, well, I'd mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago that um, I was eating a sea urchin ovary with my wife. And, well, I mean, we, it wasn't like that's what we do at home every night. We don't, I don't come home and I'm like, honey, what's for dinner? And she's like, sea urchin ovaries. And I'm like, clang, clang. And I ring in a little triangle or whatever. And then I run into a room. And I have a little, you know, Vespa that I ride in on and shit. And I've got a funny sea urchin hat. And I sit down at the table and we all pretend to be mollusks at the bottom of the show. Whatever. No. What happened was we'd been to a restaurant in Brooklyn and they were serving sea urchins. Well, we serve anyone. Sit down. Um, but they were, they were serving sea urchins to the customers. Will you serve me if I have a spiny exoskeleton um, with little purplish you know, things on it? Um, so they'd serve sea urchin. What I said was that the sea urchin was revolting. When it came to the table, it was like something you'd find in an operating theater. It was kind of quivery and awful like a caterpillar. And that they should have done something else with it. But that the place was so pretentious, they were serving quinoa and goji berries and fucking ramp and kale and so sea urchins. And my error, as you know, to err is human, to prove cast divine, uh, my error was uh, that I said that sea urchins were mollusks because I did not know the phylum within which sea urchins operated. Um, and you know the show's going well when you hear the bathroom door close. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, so I was written, uh, believe it or not, the Walking the Room uh, podcast has a science advisor. You know, I don't have a science advisor on my show. I go it alone. As Anthony Newley, as David Bowie said, that's how it must be. Our scientist advisor had this to say about sea urchins, colon. Sea urchins are phylum echinodermata, which means spiny skin, and does include sea cucumbers, but is distinct from phylum mollusca. We're actually more closely related. I love that they're writing in the first person. (laughs) If you were writing about sea urchins, wouldn't you say they and them instead of we? I, I love taking the part of a sea urchin in the dialogue here. We're actually more closely... We're actually more closely related to echinoderms than any other invertebrate, which is kind of neat. I don't know if neat's the word I'd use, but okay. That was from Chris Jameson, and Chris Jameson is their science advisor. Thank you for that correction there. So now you know. 
that sea cucumbers, which are revolting, but are animals and not cucumbers. If you've ever seen a sea cucumber, they're giant, icky, kind of greenish things that go like this, and they have a weird sucky cup at the end, and sea urchins kind of roll around, and they have spines all over them. Uh, but you can crack them open and eat their ovaries. As I pointed out, there's no, no reproductive rights for any of these animals. Uh, we're more closely related to conoderms than any invertebrate. Uh, Proopzilla, listening to your podcast from the unspoiled, unlawful, and redneckest beach outside of Louisiana, Avon, North Carolina. In the podcast, you briefly dismissed okra as a non-important, in fact, unsexy food item. Does anyone in this room know what okra is before we carry on with this letter? Okay. So all y'all know what okra is. Now, my mother, as I've stated on the show before, is from Casilla, Mississippi. Uh, I was forced to eat okra as a child. I mean, not forced. It wasn't like I got to do the dinner table and she was like, Craig, (laughs) sit the fuck down and eat the fucking okra. She didn't fucking pull a gun on me. I had to eat it because it was parental injunction. Okra is a weird, kind of furry, icky, slimy, horrible, disgusting vegetable. Some people like it. Those people aren't my friends. <laughs> it's weird. I don't know how to describe You have to cut okra up and you have to stew the shit out of it in order to even get near it. Like, it's one thing with artichokes. Like, you'd never just eat a raw artichoke. You'd have to boil an artichoke. But when you do boil an artichoke, you can put all kinds of herbs... Sorry, we're in England. Herbs <laughs> in it. And uh, because you refuse to pronounce English words... I mean, French words, because a man will enter you from behind wearing a sweater. I understand that. <laughs> But when you eat an artichoke with lemon and, and mayonnaise on it, it's fucking tremendous. Well, okra never gets tremendous, in my estimation, and that's what I asserted. Uh, I must take issue of this universally important item. Okra is coarse and slimy and smells poorly upon initial meeting, brackets, much like myself. <laughs> Once washed and loved and met with a proper roux, roux, right? You, a roux is what you make. It's like a, ba- you know, a, a, a bouillon, a kind of a base uh, sauce. Onion, onion, well, since we're in New Orleans, onion, uh, pepper, some sort of protein, brackets, uh, several dozen spices, actual fish stock made with heads and bones. It becomes the most triumphant ingredient in the gumbo of humanity, brackets, also the way to improve meat. Good okra-filled gumbo has gotten me laid many times. I don't even know where to fucking begin on that one. (laughs) If you need gumbo to get you laid... Well, you live in North Carolina. I would just say paying a woman an equal wage and letting her have reproductive rights in North Carolina would get you laid there. There you are. Fuck with Queen Okra again, and I'm lighting the torches and gathering the villagers. Matt, thank you, Matt. I will not dismiss Okra again, although I will say that I am not a big aubergine person, and there's nothing that can move me off this fucking square. I don't care if you bring your knight to Queen's Rook 4. I am not going to fucking acknowledge mate. I hate aubergine. Okay, there, I fucking said it. What about when it's in Parmigiana? Tolerable. (laughs) Aubergines and okra were sent to Earth by alien cultures who weren't dressed like David Bowie to fuck us up. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers radishes and shit. Broccoli, or as they say in Scotland, broccoli. Broccoli's delicious. Slather it with butter and you forget it's broccoli. (laughs) Put some Parmesan chunks on it and you'll be like, fucking broccoli's okay. Um, Brussels sprouts. Why isn't anyone looking at the Brussels sprouts bin? Yeah, fucking A, I love Brussels sprouts. And other people love them too. There's other people that don't. Okay, look. 
Don't. What you need to do is broil them. Broil them, Greg. We never considered that. No, you didn't, because it's England. All you wanted to do was put them in a pot and execute them. Uh, this has been sent to me by so many people I can't even describe. Carl Lagerfeld wanted to marry his cat. Um, Choupette. And we've talked about Carl Lagerfeld a lot on the show. Uh, as you know, Carl Lagerfeld is undead and walks amongst us. He's the chief designer for Ch- uh, Chanel, and uh, Chanel is a very popular design label. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he's thousands of years old. He, he never smiles. He has a ponytail. He wears giant glasses. His face is like this a lot. Why doesn't he smile, Greg? He can't afford the crackage. Have you ever seen the, sm- <laughs> the Sphinx crack a big fucking... No, because if the, if the Sphinx smiled, the bottom half of the Sphinx's head would fall off into the dirt. So Carl Lagerfeld doesn't smile. And he wears weird fingerless gloves and lots of rings and shit like that. And as I've done his walk a million times, he, he's 70-something and he, and he wears jeans and boots and he acts like he's all young and shit like that. He, like, he will say, like, I have many iPods. Like, that's supposed to hip you to that he's young and shit. But when you see him walk at the end of his show, it's... cat a couple of weeks ago. A thousand people have sent me this fucking email. Thank you for the thousand people that sent it to me. Uh, he's been saying preposterous things for year, uh, years. The man has no filter or so it would appear, but that's what makes him so entertaining. And these are some of the quotes that he's had over the years. Now often I have read Karl Lagerfeld in the voice of Jeremy Irons. Now <laughs> Jeremy Irons over the last few months has been absent from this show. For several reasons. One, you may remember a few months ago he gave an interview where he said that he worries about gay marriage because what if a father married his son for tax reasons? (laughs) This was beyond the pale of the most egregious thing that could ever be fucking said in the history of mankind. They tried to give him a chance to get out of it and he went, well, I made some points that were frivolous but valid. No, they weren't valid. No father has ever considered marrying his son for tax reasons. My dad was as fucking weird and impecunious with a fucking dollar as any human that ever lived. He never went, Greg, let's you and me get hitched. And then we can really fuck over the IRS. And then in the last week, Jeremy's taken it upon... Once upon a time, let me put it this way. Jeremy Irons was a lovable pervert. We get, you saw the movie Damage. You've seen every movie Jeremy was in. You think, I'd fucking hit it. He's good looking. I don't care how old he is. He's fucking good looking and thin and shit, and he's cool. He wears a fucking scarf. He dresses like he's going to an art exhibit at the Sachi Gallery and be- before choking. You know what I mean? Like, he's, a, he's, that, he's that kind of guy. But then in the last few months, we've discovered that he's a horrible, recalcitrant, fucking hideous, tank-driving fascist. And then the other day, he said, well, Jimmy Savile and all, they, they seem to be pillorying anyone. They can... And what about the girls who went to see Top of the Pops? They were, they were goers. He said they were goers. And, no, you mustn't... No, victims... How do I start with this? I don't know where to start. You... People who are victims of sexual abuse are not the instigators of sexual abuse. They are the victims. You mustn't... So I'm going to read it. It's Jeremy Irons. 
in the movie Die Hard 3. But in order that I protect myself, I'm going to wear this Jeremy Irons mask. This is Karl Lagerfeld's quotes. My, uh, Die Hard 3 was the movie where Jeremy Irons played a German character. He was the brother of Alan Rickman from the movie Die Hard 1. And you may remember Alan Rickman in that movie. Well, because I've moved on to kidnapping, I, I think it's... Blah, blah, blah. And then Jeremy Irons in Die Hard 3. Uh, hello, my name's... My only ambition in life is to wear size 28 jeans. You know, I'm reassuringly shallow. I'm talking about David Bowie and shit like that. If your only ambition in life, not to write that novel, not to cure cancer, and mind you, we, should, we need to scale down our ambitions. Sometimes your ambition is to, I want a hot dog. Or for you guys, I want a saveloy on a bunty. Or buddy or whatever they're fucking called. Karl Lagerfeld's only ambition in life is to wear size 28 jeans. Uh, this one's a goodie. I get along with everyone except for men my age who are bourgeois or retired or boring. This is Karl Lagerfeld on the topic of underwear. I'm not mad for thongs. <laughs> This one I think you'll love. This is Karl Lagerfeld on the topic of ugly people. By the way, he is an expert on this topic. <laughs> Life is not a beauty contest. Some ugly people are great. Then I hate is nasty ugly people. The worst is ugly short men. <laughs> Women can be short, but for men, it is impossible. It is something they will not be forgiven in life. They are mean, and they want to kill you. <laughs> now, I've known some ugly short guys in my life, and none of them has ever fucking pulled a switchblade on me and shit. This is about food. And as you know, when you talk about food, there's really nobody better to go to than people in fashion. Because... <laughs> If there's one thing fashion people know, it's food. And that means a Diet Pepsi and a blowjob. <laughs> then I see tons of food in the studio for us and for everybody, for me. It's as if this stuff was made out of plastic. The idea doesn't even enter my mind that a human being could put that into their mouth. I'm like the animals in the forest. They don't touch what they cannot eat. Carl, you've never been to a forest. And first of all, animals eat fucking anything. If you've ever owned a dog, Carl, which you haven't, they'll eat grass and shit. They'll eat their own excrement. Dogs will fucking eat anything. Animals in the forest, you have a food issue because you were fat and you wore an orange jumpsuit and carried a fan for 45 years. And then you got liposuction and pretended you went on a diet. And now you have ties 28 waist and jeans and you walk like you have spina bifida. <laughs> on children. 
it would be difficult to have an ugly daughter. <laughs> Let me ask you something, Carl. When you were sent to our world from the other world, <laughs> if I were a woman, I would love to have lots of kids. But for men, I don't believe in it. <laughs> Considering that your ovaries are so old that there are no eggs left in them, Carl, that's a pretty hot choice. Carl Lagerfeld says, oh, this one's a good name. On ideas. Oh, swans. How about swans? Yes, Carl Lagerfeld opined on swans. Swans. They are the meanest animals in the world, you know. I had problems with them as a child. I think he's speaking to all of us now. I don't think there's one person in this room who didn't have a hectic swan situation when they were growing up. You know, you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, it's Christmas, and then all of a sudden, fucking swans are all on your dick and shit. They hate children. Well, in the fairy tale, they do until they're made beautiful. When they're ducklings, and then when they become... I was caught by one, so I know. (laughs) That explains so much. It's not so much that your boyfriend threw you over in the 80s. It's not so much that you were never Yves Saint Laurent. It's not so much that you wear lots of rings and sunglasses and wear a weird fucking 18th century collar. It's not so much that you hate everyone that ever lived and that you're a fucking maniac who lives in Paris and and designs for Channel. It's that I think you were violated by a swan. The idea of swans is lovely and they have a beautiful shape, but they seem more romantic than they in fact are. I don't think they really, I don't think really they die like this. They just drop dead, hmm? They just drop dead, hmm? But who wants to see that? I, I, I think I speak on behalf of humanity when I say no one wants to see a swan drop dead. I am, however, excited by the notion that you were caught by one. And that the word caught is a euphemism. This is about his mother. Jesus Christ. I thought he was hatched from a leathery egg. Then I was a child, I asked my mother what homosexuality was about, and she said, and this was a hundred years ago. He was a child before World War I. We're going to hang the Kaiser from a sour apple tree. And she was very open-minded. It's like hair color, it's nothing. Some people are blonde and some people have dark hair. It's not a subject. This was a very healthy attitude. It's true. I agree with him about that one. Being gay is not a lifestyle choice. And for everyone who says it's a lifestyle choice and that people shouldn't get married when they're gay, it's like people who say that, first of all, it's indefensible. And one day you will have to face your maker 
whoever that maker is, whether you go back to the leathery egg you were conceived in or whether you're caught by the swan that ejected you from its fallopian tubes, one day you will find that the anti-gay stance is an unsupportable stance and that you'll find that the very heavens are gay and that the universe that's swirling about us is gay and that if David Bowie has proven nothing over the ages... It's that he's not gay and makes no fucking case for it because he's fucking gay, and that's why. Uh, uh, Here's one that I enjoyed. This is a quote from Rabelais. Tell the truth and shame the devil. Um, Let's talk... This is the boring preachy part. It won't be long, and then we're going to do questions, and then we'll fuck off into this good night. Um, But first, let's give away some of these T-shirts here. Do I have a female large? can't have the fucking cat. <laughs> the cat has to stay with me. I bought this at a Christmas market in London, and I don't know where to get another one. <laughs> Although people make other ones of it and stuff like that. And thank you for whoever gave me the Jeremy Irons mask tonight. That was very kind of you. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the United States, and uh, the G8 is conferencing this week. By the time we, this uh, podcast goes out, the G8 will be over. The G8, let me explain it to you, since a lot of people seem to be confused about what the G8 is. Every year... Um, the people who rule the world for all the corporations gather together to fuck us over in every way they can. Um, what they want to do is take away all of our freedom, all of our rights, and ruin the economy of every country that's not a first world place uh, ruled by giant oligarchies. Thank you. And so they're meeting this week in Ireland. They built fake... Where are they meeting? Northern Ireland. They built fake buildings. They built an entire fake town. They've actually put up fake businesses in the small town in Ireland they are to fool people like Catherine the Great did when she rolled through Russia on her grand tour uh, that, that uh, everything was okay. Because if there's one thing the leaders of the world want, it's to pretend that everything is okay and that we're not all starving to death and we're not all scrapping for the last fucking dollar that we have and that we're not all desperate and fucking jumpy and having a fucking heart attack about the future. Um, so that's what the G8 is, in case you wanted to know. They get together and they slap each other on the back and they have prostitutes and shit like that. Even Angela Merkel? Sure. And uh, Obama goes like this and David Cameron goes like this. And all the leaders of the world pretend that everything's going to be okay, and it's not. Uh, not as long as they're in charge of everything and that they're taking orders from corporations like HSBC and uh, British Petroleum and Bank of America and all the giant international world conglomerates that the world is taking orders from. Now, every time I get off a plane in London, the jetway that you get off of has HSBC advertisements on it. Now, you may remember what happened to HSBC earlier in the year. They were found guilty of laundering drug money and uh, uh, aiding and abetting drug dealers all over the world. Now, if you were to get busted on the street here, right upstairs uh, on Dean Street here in London, um, with the minute amount of cocaine, you would go to jail and might even be beaten and might even have a club stuck up in one of an orifice that you wouldn't like a club stuck up in. (laughs) None of these things happen to HSBC, and that's who sponsors the G8. Not only do they sponsor it, they pay for it. Not only do they pay for it, they're in charge of it. The people who run the world have no say in how the world is run. Know that, one. 
Only the people who have money that run the world are the people who are giving, calling the shots, rather. Uh, so in any case, that's happening this week. And I include black Jesus in this. Uh, as you know, it's been a shitty month for black Jesus back in the old, good old U.S. of A. Not as shitty a month as it has been for fucking white dunderhead David Cameron here. Uh, with all the unbelievable pederasty and everything that's been going on around him. And every time you see him, he looks more gormless than the last time you see him. The other day in the Daily fucking Mail, the Daily Mail, which I read in the plane on the way over. Why'd you read the Daily Mail, Greg? For laughs. <laughs> there was a picture of the GP of the year, right? One of your doctors who works for, who works for the... Uh, 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 you know, who is one of your public health doctors, right, uh, was pictured because he was going to a, a cancer patient's house every night after his rounds were over and helping the wife uh, care for her husband who had uh, terminal cancer and helping him uh, be cleaned up and helping the wife do everything. He got 5,000 quid for being GP of the year. Yeah, 5,000 quid. Do you realize what an infinitesimal drop in the comprehensive ocean of the corporate bullshit that is, one? And two, there was a picture of him with Cameron. And the doctor was standing there, and he had little spectacles on, and he was bald, and he was like this with his prize. And David Cameron was like this. (laughs) And it was like, you wouldn't know kindness if it crawled up your ass and died like an iguana. That's what irks me about the world. The world's been the same way always and ever, right? In the Roman Empire, it was the same way. In the Babylonian Empire, in ancient Egypt, there was always a giant hierarchy, and all of us were at the fucking bottom when we had no say in it. But the idea that there's no kindness anymore, and that's what really fucks me off. Um, At a certain point, you have to understand that humans need contact with one another and that we all have to reach out to each other. And that a GP who goes out of his way, who works for the NHS, to go every night after his rounds to go to a cancer patient's house deserves more than 5,000 quid and a handshake from a gormless, chinless fucking twat. (laughs) And that the United States... You get the idea, you get the idea. So, this Mr. Snowden, Edward Snowden, um, I have watched him be, uh, speaking of pilloried, as Jim, uh, Jeremy Arons would say, um, the United States, uh, uh, the media all over the world, but particularly the media in the United States, um, you know what's going on with the NSA case. I don't want to recapitulate it, everyone, but you have to understand that not everyone knows what I'm talking about when I bring up these topics. The NSA is the National Security Administration. Their job is to spy on everyone all over the world, not just in America, by the goddamn way, but everyone all over the world all the time. It's been revealed in the last few weeks that they are reading emails, listening to phone calls. No, they're not listening. They're not listening, Greg. You're getting it wrong. That's inaccurate. They're not listening. They're just recording (laughs) every phone call that's made. In other words, nothing you say, do, or put on your phone. And I've been doing this joke for years, and I'll be honest. I've been doing it for like two years now. And I did it last year here uh, at this very theater. uh, uh, And I did it in Edinburgh last year. And this is the joke. I would go, did it ever occur to you that your telephone that you're so fucking involved with that all your friends live in, the the telephone that your fantasy world lives in, uh, because we're all so attached to our fucking telephones, right? Um, 
that, it, that the government and the corporations gave us this so that they could watch us all the fucking time. Your phone is a microphone. It listens to you all the time, even when it's off. Your phone is a camera. It's watching you, even when it's off. Your phone is a GPS. It knows where you are all the time. And when you go to Starbucks and buy a mochaccino, it knows how many fucking mochaccinos you buy. Do you think it's any coincidence that when you go to the supermarket and you use your phone and you buy a bunch of bananas, the next day you go on Facebook and there's a giant ad on Facebook that says, would you like to meet women that like bananas? <laughs> I've been doing that joke for two years, and this is the biggest laugh it's ever gotten just now. <laughs> I don't want to say I'm prescient, and I don't want to say that I anticipated this or anything like that. It's just that from the get-go, the whole idea of a personal communication device that you carry with you at all times, that you type your most personal thoughts into, and that you communicate with all the people around you, is an avenue for the government and the corporations to watch us. And when I say the government and the corporations, they are one and the same in the first world, right? In the third world, people live as they live because every day is a fucking scrap for survival to find water that doesn't have fucking AIDS in it and shit. (laughs) But here in the first world, that's what it's about. And that's what the NSA has been doing. Well, Edward Snowden, a couple of weeks ago, blew the fucking whistle on this. And he didn't blow the whistle on, oh, my God, important military secrets and shit like that that would let the Al-Qaeda fucking kill us. There's no danger of the Al-Qaeda killing you at any point in your life, by the way. What there's more danger of is the shitty fucking uh, 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 infrastructure of, our, of England and the United States. We, bridges fall down. Shit doesn't stand up anymore. Food is poisoned because there's no government oversight over anything anymore. That's what the fucking danger is. If you get killed by the Al-Qaeda, I'll give you a million dollars out of my pocket and shit. (laughs) The Al-Qaeda is as disorganized as any fucking shitty fucking terrorist group of bumbling fucking uh, unbelievable... assholes that ever fucking grouped together. The IRA were drug dealers and fucking gun runners. That's what the Al-Qaeda is too. They're disorganized and shit like that. You've seen what's going on in Turkey. You've seen what's going on in Syria. So let me get to the point. (laughs) Edward Snowden blew the whistle on this and I've watched the American media and even liberal sites that I once trusted go, this fucking guy needs to be thrown in jail and blah, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. When did kill the messenger become the fucking operative motive for all of us out here in the world? You have to understand, the enemy is our own governments who are not looking after us, nor do they care about what's going to happen to us in the future. Otherwise, we would be provided with proper health care and a tomorrow that we could grasp onto. This is our job. We must provide this for one another. Uh, in, this is by Daniel Ellsberg. I don't have time to explain who Daniel Ellsberg is. Fucking Google him on your phone that I advised you not to use. <laughs> Daniel Ellsberg wrote the Pentagon Papers. He broke them out during the war when Nixon was president. And a lot of people compare um, uh, uh, Black Jesus, uh, uh, Barack Obama, to Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was president in the 60s. I would compare him more to Richard M. Nixon. Because Richard M. Nixon spied on everyone all the fucking time and was the most paranoid, delusional fucking maniac that ever held the office of president in the United States. Or Bush, who was just gormless but fucking walked around and had everybody do his his dirty work for him. Daniel Ellsberg was vilified and uh, almost imprisoned for releasing papers that described the illegality of the Vietnam War and the fact that the Vietnam War was not fought to bring freedom to communist countries, but was fought to bring heroin money into the United States and support the military-industrial complex, much like every war that's ever been fought. They are not 
fought to bring freedom or to bring down dictators. They're fought to make sure that the level of living goes down in whatever country is fighting them and that we are lessened by those wars financially, emotionally, and every other way. I know I'm sounding like George Orwell now. We're going to get to George Orwell. (laughs) Daniel Ellsberg says, In my estimation, there's not been in American history a more important leak than Edward Snowden's release of the NSA material. That definitely includes the Pentagon Papers. Snowden's whistleblowing gives us the possibility to roll back a key part of what has amounted to, quote, executive coup against the United States Constitution. I don't have the Fourth Amendment in front of me, but in our country, my country, we have a thing called the Fourth Amendment, and that uh, requires that there has to be probable cause and justifiable cause to spy on people. This, what's happening in the United States, is, does not contain any of that. The government claims it has a court warrant. Um, as Russell Tice, a former NSA security analyst, put it, it's a kangaroo court with a rubber stamp. So their bit, uh, uh, Obama's uh, administration's assertion is that they have gone to the courts, unlike the Bush administration, which just did it without court order, to spy and tap phones and, and, and read people's emails. The Obama administration has gone to a court. That court has had 1,856 requests for spying. All 1,856 requests have been approved. That's not a court that's judicious. I'd like to say the word judicious in any way. Um, If every single case brought in front of you is rubber stamped, that's not a court because a court means this case case merits approval, this case doesn't merit approval. Um, The fact that congressional leaders were briefed on this and went along with it without any open debate, hearing staff analysis, or real chance for effective dissent shows how broken the system of checks and balances is in this country. And when I say this country, I mean England as well. Because as you know, we're spying on you. In 1975, Senator Frank Church spoke to the NSA uh, in these terms. I know the capacity that is there to make tyranny total in America, and we must see to it that this agency and all agencies that possess this technology operate within the law and under proper supervision so that we never cross over that abyss. That is the abyss from which there is no return. Um, I think we crossed over that abyss. Snowden did what he did because he recognized the NSA surveillance programs for what they are, Dangerous, unconstitutional activity. The wholesale invasion of American and foreign citizens' privacy does not contribute to our security. It puts in danger the very liberties we're trying to protect. Um, This is what Orwell had to say. He wrote several books, many of which you'll know. One of which was called 1984, The Other Animal Farm. Those are his two most famous books. He also wrote Homage to Catalonia. Uh, And um, Orwell knew everything about what the governments will do and not do to fuck us over. This is from 1984. If you are not familiar with 1984, and we've spoken of it many times on the show, 1984 was originally supposed to be titled 1948. It was about England in 1948, what he perceived England was in 1948. In other words, a state that spies... If you recall, and you don't, and I'll remind you, (laughs) let me hit you to the jive, In 1948, everyone in England had to carry an identity card with them and could be stopped summarily by the police and asked to produce this identity card to show that they deserved to be here and deserved to walk around the streets, no matter how much tax they paid, no matter where they were from. And they were being spied upon at all times. Orwell anticipated that all of our devices would follow us around and watch us at all times. If you remember in the book 1984, or even in the movie, which is a fine movie, 
Your television, the telescreen, watches you, and you watch it. And every morning they do calisthenics. And in the book 1984, everyone has to get up in the morning and do calisthenics, right? And they live in London, which is no longer called, well, it's called London, but England's called Airstrip One, to reduce it to its most military terms. And they're doing calisthenics. And the woman on TV is going, dip deep, dip deep, touch your toes. And Winston, our hero in the book, is half-assing it, right? It's England. <laughs> All he does is drink gin and smoke shitty cigarettes, victory cigarettes, which fall apart. And he won't touch his toes, and he won't do it. And on the screen, and this is one of the more shocking parts in the early part of the book, the woman on the screen goes, Smith, number 6079, deeper, touch your toes. I'm a mother of two, and I can still touch my toes. And Winston goes, as he realizes the TV is watching him, And in the book, Orwell says, it's the first time he touched his toes in years. I'm not saying that's happening now. I'm saying it's happening now. (laughs) Orwell said in the book, 1984, history has stopped. Uh Uh-huh. Do you get the idea that history stopped? Remember 10 years ago? Remember 20 years ago? Remember 30 years ago? Um, Dame Thatcher died. When she died, some papers canonized her. Meanwhile, in the streets of England, people rioted and shit. Um, two years ago in this country, the year before last, people rioted all over this country because of the economic conditions in this country. That was glossed over by the press here. And, oh, that was a few bad apples, and, you know, they were using phones, and they had to be put in prison, and, oh, the poor, golly. Why are the poor so discontent? Is it the fact that they have no money? History has stopped. Nothing exists except endless present in which the party is always right. That doesn't seem like today, does it, much? Always the eyes watching you and the voice enveloping you, asleep or awake, working or eating, indoors or out of doors, in the bath or in the bed, no escape, nothing was your own except the few cubic centimeters inside your skull. And then this one, which reminds me of Mr. Snowden and... Mr. Manning, who's on trial in the United States right now. And by the way, the Bradley-Manning trial is getting no coverage in the United States in the mainstream media. And uh, Mr. Assange, who we went by the Ecuadorian embassy yesterday, my wife and I, to have a look. And very cleverly, there's only two English policemen standing out in front, one about a half a block away and one in the doorway of the embassy. But you know that they've put cameras everywhere, and you know that they put listening devices everywhere because the Ecuadorian embassy where Mr. Assange is is only half of one floor of that building across the street from Herod's, and they don't want to upset anyone by having lots of army tanks and Saracens and shit there. In a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Well, there you are. This is from Ai Weiwei. Ai Weiwei, as you know, is a Chinese dissident who's been relentlessly persecuted by his own government and has written an op-ed. This is from The Guardian. Yes, I realize it's The Guardian. Go with me. This is Ai Weiwei talking. I lived in the United States for 12 years. This abuse of state power goes totally against my understanding of what it means to be a civilized society. And it will be shocking for me if American citizens allow this to continue. The U.S. has a great tradition of individualism and privacy and has long been a center for free thinking and creativity result. In our experience in China, basically, there's no privacy at all. That is why China is far behind the world in important respects. Even though it has become so rich, it trails behind in terms of passion, imagination, and creativity. Our President Obama met with the leader of China about three or four weeks ago 
in Palm Springs, California, outside of where I live in um, Holly Rock. And we kiss the Chinese ass all the time because we need their money and we're in massive debt to them. If the Chinese ever, ever decide to collect the debt that, the America, uh, that America owes them, we're fucked eight ways from fucking Wednesday. So him and the premier of China were out there with their open collars, no ties, because it was way too hot. And we have to watch this shit on TV and have to be fed it, spoon-fed it, like it's news and stuff like that. China doesn't have any pop stars because they don't allow... I mean, they, they do. I'm sure they do. But, like, for instance, do you remember the song uh, Gangnam Style by Psy? It was... Exactly. Uh, you remember it, and it was, you know, it sounded like it was written by a, a toaster. <laughs> I don't know. Gangnam Style. <laughs> The Chinese are wildly jealous of Korea. Wildly jealous. Because Korea had a hit that went global and got a bajillion hits on YouTube and shit. China doesn't know how to allow that to happen. And this is one of their premier artists talking about that. Do we want to live in a world without David Bowie? Do we want to live in a world without imagination and the ability to express ourselves if we want to? But Greg, it hasn't come to that, surely. Yeah, it fucking is coming to that. When these, if you'll pardon the expression, cocksuckers meet in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, which on its own is a political statement that I can't even begin to fucking digress, discuss, and dissect, and dis- disseminate here right this second. When they meet in a place like that, behind giant barriers that keep people from protesting or getting near them because they absolutely do not want to hear the voice of the people in any way because that voice terrifies them. You know that we still have power. That's all I have to say about that. We still have power because they're scared to death that we will disagree with them, that we will do whatever we want. This is the part I wanted to get to earlier. Uh, Ian Banks passed away. And um, I'm hoping not to cry during this part here. Ian Banks was a a, a marvelous author. I have to explain who he was to the American and to the rest of the audience who's listening in Canada and Australia and New Zealand. On this island, Ian Banks was immensely popular and has been uh, since 1984 when his first uh, uh, book was published. Now, I had occasion to meet him. I had occasion to interview him several times. And he was lovely beyond measure. And he was a humanist, which is what I loved about him the most. He was also an atheist, which I respected him for. He called people who prayed all the time God botherers. <laughs> Ian Banks passed away of cancer that he had no control over. People who have cancer are not in control. They are victims of their cancer. He was so beautiful of an author, and he had so much to say. He also wrote sci-fi as well as regular novels. 29 books Ian Banks came out with. Um, He tried and tried and tried to get published, and then finally he was. He did not move to London when he became successful. He stayed in Scotland, where he was from. Um, I saw him interviewed once with my wife at a book fair ages ago in Edinburgh. And one of the people asked him, why are you so successful as an author? And he said, because I speak English. I'm a Scottish author. I write in English. He said, I have a Finnish friend, and they write in Finnish. A million and a half people speak Finnish. When I write in English, I have the whole world open to me to write in that. He was, his perspective was amazing. Um, here's what he said. I'd rather read his words. This is from a book called Dead Air. And I only read this because years ago I had him on my show. I was doing uh, – and 
uh, Bob voice will remember. I was doing a, 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 a radio show in Scotland, and uh, it was a talk show in the middle of the day, and I had Ian Banks on as a guest with David Starkey and Rob Newman. It was quite a little show. <laughs> Rob Newman came up to me and went, I don't want to sit near David Starkey. He's going to fucking kill me. <laughs> and David Starkey went, Rob Newman's hot. <laughs> I was like, Rob, sit next to David. He'll be cool. <laughs> Ian Banks was on the show. And uh, this was from a book called Dead Air, which came out that year. Uh, 2002? 2001? Dead Air was a book about a left-wing shock jock, of which there are none, which I busted him on at the time. I said, there's no such thing as a left-wing shock jock. We only have right-wing shock jocks. And this is a quote from that book. And this is what I read to Ian Banks on that day, because I thought it would be funny. Maybe Joe's right. I hate so many things. I'm a media person, and there's so much media stuff I just despise. From comics who make fun of their audience. Ah, the masochism of paying good money to be insulted in public. (laughs) And Ian Banks went... (whistles) (laughs) Uh, I couldn't resist. Uh, He died of cancer. He wrote The Crow Road and The Wasp Factory. This is what he said uh, to Kirsty Wark about his cancer diagnosis. My reaction was along the lines of, oh, bugger. It's one of those things, I guess, in a sense, you rehearse in your head. You sort of game it, you play it. You think, how would I feel, and how would I react if a loved one dies or is delivered of a verdict, a prognosis like that? If you're writing about people who are facing death, you automatically have to embody that. You have to take that in quite seriously. He wrote a book called Quarry, uh, and it's about a person dying of cancer. But you have to know that he'd written a good deal of the book before he got his own diagnosis. And then he passed away with it. Um, When I first got the original bad news in the Victoria Hospital in Kirkati, I'd taken my laptop in. I thought it might do a bit of work while I was there, and I couldn't really be bothered. I'd basically done my words for the day anyway, so having got this news, I sat in bed and wrote, there's a bit in this book, The Quarry, where the character guy says, I shall not be upset to leave this stupid, bloody country and this bloody human race and this idiotic world and the rest of it. It's a proper rant. I remember sitting there and thinking that, right out, you've got to use some of these feelings that you're having right now. Use it to go to town on the whole idea. So some of my darkest thoughts at that point were channeled into that bit of writing. I've really got to stop doing my research too late. This is such a bad idea. (laughs) One positive that did strike me, I'm getting all this love and admiration now rather than the people standing around talking about me awfully well when I'm dead, like I'm doing now, or at the wake or that sort of thing. So it's been great to appreciate that now while I'm still alive. I've had a brilliant life, and I think I've been more than lucky than unlucky, even including the news of the cancer. I've written 29 books. I'm leaving a substantial body of work behind me. Whether that'll survive, who knows? But I can be quite proud of that, and I am. There's none of the books that I'm not proud of. There's ones I think could have been done better with. I'll, I'll, I'll nominate one, Fearsome Engine. No one's going to laugh. And you're quite right not to laugh. I still think Canal Dreams is the runt of the litter. (laughs) (laughs) Canal Dreams. But I'm still very proud of the Wasp Factory. Uh, And then he wrote science fiction, as you know. Uh, There's an enormous... And if if you know about his science fiction, Ian Banks invented a thing called the culture. And the culture is us. Sharing, caring, liberal people who live in a technologically advanced world where your computer uh, uh, flies around and follows you and knows your name and talks to you and has a personality. And the problem with the culture is whenever they meet another culture uh, in the universe, 
they want to make sure that they impose their values on it. Even though they're sharing caring liberals who know that everyone should do whatever they want. And that's my favorite part of the culture, that he nailed fucking where I'm from in San Francisco in the Bay Area to the fucking wall. And that the sharing caring liberals of the UK who don't want people to smoke uh, indoors, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an enormous freedom you get in science fiction that can go just anywhere and do anything. It's that simple. The things I love and things I tend to read are most science fiction and mainstream literature. And those are what I love to write as well. It's been a privilege to be able to get away with it for an entire career, to be able to do both. And this is about music. I'm thinking the solace is going to come because I write music. I have pretensions towards being a composer, and that's what I intend to spend most of my creative energies on in the next couple of months or however long I've got, writing music and trying to get to it in some level of presentability. So that should be, you know, accessible. I can really only do one thing at a time, so now that's it. Basically, with the writing, I can devote myself more to this. And even if no one ever hears or no one ever enjoys it, it'll be fun for me. It will be genuinely therapeutic. I just have such a hoot with this. Um, Ian Banks is uh, using the power of the grid to power himself through an accession into another universe right now. And as one of his little droids says uh, in the movie, uh, in the movie, in the book, um, I believe it's accession, uh, one of the little droids fires out of the ship upon the moment of the ship being destroyed. And at the moment it's shooting out into space, it goes, fuck you! (laughs) And I believe Ian Banks is in the sky right now. That's enough of that. Jane, will you do a couple questions and then we'll piss off into the night. And I'm, I, uh, I didn't mean to get emotional, but hey, there you are. I met Ian Banks and he was a lovely person and he had a lot to say. And uh, if you never get a chance, if you ever get a chance to read an Ian Banks book, uh, they're quite funny. He's funny as fuck. When my wife met him, she said, I was reading The Crow Road and I laughed out loud. And Ian Banks said to her, that's what every author dreams of hearing. That's what every author writes to try to get people to laugh out loud when they're reading his books. Anyone have a question? And then we'll go, Jane, you can turn the lights up if you want. I don't give a shit. I think I've laid myself bare in this fucking episode. (laughs) Where are you? Hi. Hi. What's your name? Oh, no, I've got the mic. Where do you want to go? To someone who has a question, Dean. Hi, Greg, I'm Roger. Hi, what's your name, mate? Roger. Hi, Roger. Um, Hilarious comedy name. The only reason my mother and father gave it to me. Mm. Um, I have to correct you. It wasn't Jeremy Irons who said that he was fearful that the uh, gay marriage would allow him to marry his son for tax avoidance. That was Norman um, Tebbit. No, 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 Jeremy Irons. It was Jeremy Irons. Roger, I have to correct you. It, it, well, it does lead Norman to... Tebbets may have said it. You're quite right about that. It, it, but it Jeremy does... Irons said... Well, Jeremy Irons said was this, I, I, I just water. I just water. It, it does lead me on because Norman Tebbett then said he is fearful of a lesbian queen in the future who could have a progeny who was through artificial insemination and where would that leave the monarchy? Ah, Norman Tebbett said a lot of things. So I was wondering <laughs> what your opinion on lesbian queen would be for Britain. Yeah, fucking A. Have you a question, Roger? Oh, that was a correction. That was my question. Thanks, mate. Anyone else? Jane, let's find a, let's find a woman. Or, or a man who looks like a woman. Hello. Hi, darling. Um, I just wanted to know, what do you think is waiting for you in Room 101? I didn't understand what she said. What is waiting for me? I love that you mentioned 90, 1984. I was wondering, what is waiting for you in the Ministry of Love in Room 101? What's the worst thing oh, in, in the my, world? in my Room 101? Yeah. Oh, kittens. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, d- I don't fancy drowning much. Is that it? <laughs> as you remember in the book, he says, for some people it's as simple as things that aren't even lethal. And then for Winston, it's rats. <laughs> right? So some things, some people don't want to be tickled. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be a lethal thing that's in Room 101. Uh, for me, I think it would be the inability um, to speak. <laughs> if I couldn't blather like the fucking garrulous, loquacious, um, unbelievable, self-empowered, self-enchanted pixie that I am, I think that would be really terrifying for me. Also, I, I would hate to be able to not ever be able to alter myself again, but I realize that's juvenile. So I'm going to say not being able to speak. Thank you for that. What about you, Pumpkin Butter? What would your room 101 be? Um, Since I'll be Nick Hancock here. I think it would be like an empty restaurant and my mother is sitting there and I have to have dinner with her without my phone or anyone else. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. A lot of people, um, you know, families are a tough thing. And particularly here in England, I understand. Uh... A lot of people venerate family and a lot of people venerate parenthood and all that. But it's really difficult, isn't it? And for her to say that, I appreciate your honesty and I thank you for saying that. Um, Being alone with your parents or being alone with one of them is maybe the most difficult thing you can fucking do. And uh, if anyone can remember the second line of the stanza, um, Philip Larkin, they fuck you up, your mom and dad, they don't mean to, but they do. They give you all the thoughts they had and that's some extra just for you. What? Go on, go on. took an English poet to, in- to crystallize that feeling. And, it, and thank you very much for remembering all of it. I never remember the second part of it, uh, but it's so true. I live in L.A. where people in their 50s have children and then go, it's really hard. And you're like, imagine how hard it is for your kids. That you're going to be 70 and then dead when they're in high school and shit. And you fucking laid that shit on them. And that you gave it no fucking thought because all you thought about was your own immortality and shit like that. And then you bring a nanny in to fucking uh, do all the parenting for you and stuff like that. And that you feel like it's some sort of big fucking gift that you bestowed on them as opposed to an onerous responsibility that was yours to fucking take and that you should have taken it upon yourself to give them unconditional fucking love. Um, Sorry if that's what I think parenting is, but, you know, hey... Uh, like you say, you know, that might be another toughie. One more question and then we'll fuck off. I should have ended on that because that was genius, mate. Greg, you've said in the past that uh, the hat is the last refuge of the scoundrel. What was? The hat is the last refuge of the scoundrel. (laughs) And uh, I noticed in the... The hat? Yeah, the hat. And I've noticed... It's just because I can't wear them, but yeah. At the G8 uh, back home in Northern Ireland, uh, there's a lot of people wearing suits without ties. What's your... Uh, you, you, you touched on it briefly, that uh, there was some open collars uh, on show. What's your opinion of people who wear uh, suits without ties? You know what? 
It's a choice, and I've done it. And you know why I've done it? Because it's bloody warm. If it's too bloody warm, I'll take a tie off sometimes. I don't think it's the best look. I think it gives you that kind of uh, croupier coke dealer look that, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like when you shave your cheekbones and let your beard be down here and you don't wear a tie. Uh, uh, girls look at you and think, roofies, mollies, what's happening? <laughs> I think go tie and sweat, you know what I mean? Uh, but I, I, I don't denigrate it altogether. I know I shit on everything everyone loves all the time, but uh, for me, hats are really a toughie. Uh, if you look bitchin' in a driving cap, then I say, Babe Ruth it. Fucking wear a driving cap. If you don't look bitchin' in a hat... Like, I love to wear cowboy hats. I really do. You can't imagine how Jewish I look in a cowboy hat. <laughs> I'm like hop along dreidel in a cowboy hat and shit. <laughs> hey, who's gonna ride and dawdle around up? This is gonna be crazy. I'm a sugar with the thing that I It's horrible. It's horrible. I wanna look like Gary Cooper, but I don't. I look like I look like Adam Sandler in a fucking cowboy hat. <laughs> one more, Jane, and then we'll blow. Oh, one more. Anyone? Oh, okay. You again? Oh no, Roger's mate. Sorry, I'm Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi. Uh, I was wondering... Hello, Chris. Oh, hello. Uh, Mike McShane was an awesome bad guy in uh, Doctor Who. I was wondering... Was he? Yeah. Fantastic. I was wondering if you were a bad guy in Doctor Who, what kind of bad guy would you be? I would be Reptilicus, the bad guy. Uh, I would have a long tail, and I would have spectacles on as well, and I would be creating a brew that would make the universe uh, into a future where you had to eat in a restaurant alone with your mother. <laughs> this has been the Smartest Man in the World Proofcast. My name is Greg Proofs. Thank you very much for coming out. I wish you nothing but love. May every page that you turn be a satchel page, may every velvet rings to be a cool papa bell. I can't tell you how much this means to me. Good night.